Good morning. Hope you're having a good day. If you're joining us live, welcome to the program. If you're catching us on a traditional platform, well, sorry you missed it live, but hopefully you'll enjoy it as well. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around podcast. A lot of stuff going on in the sports world as the NFL camps all will be open as of today, including the Bills. We're certainly going to hit on that. Major League trade deadline is Friday. We're going to talk about that as well. Tough weekend for the Yankees, and where do they go from here? Certainly going to discuss that, what other teams have already done and are looking to do. The Sabres made a flurry of moves, and the biggest move yet to come. Sabre fans, I'll let you know, but it it might be one of those like graphic injury things. You know, you, you there might be content you want might not want to hear because I'm not all that excited about the moves the Sabres made. The Olympics, big news this morning, Simone Biles, the face of the U.S. Olympic team, and frankly, the face of this Olympiad going in, has pulled out of the team competition for the United States. That is a medical issue, is what's how it's being termed. Not physical. So it looks like Simone Biles dealing with some stuff over in Tokyo. So we'll get to all that. I want to start with the NFL. Camps are about to open, as I mentioned. The Bills open today. And what's been going on at One Bills Drive or around One Bills Drive, and I'm by around I mean on the social media thing, has been very atypical of this recent Bills roster. Sean McDermott, when he came in, talked about culture and talked about how important the culture was. And frankly, me and I'm sure many of you thought that was just a crock of shit. And for Sean McDermott to continue to harp on the culture and the process and all the stuff, the buzzwords, I didn't buy in. Well, they made the playoffs his first year, gutted the roster, didn't make him the second year, made him the third year, certainly went to the AFC championship game last year. And guess what? I am a believer in culture, and I'm a believer in Sean McDermott's ability to create and maintain, more importantly, maintain that culture. They have brought players in who fit the culture. They have not brought players in who didn't fit the culture. And again, they've taken some chances on guys that weren't exactly choir boys You can't have all choir boys. Every now and then, somebody's going to be a player who steps out of bounds a little bit and and maybe not the worst guy, but certainly not a choir boy. And and that's okay. And through all this, McDermott has been able to maintain that culture. However, he's going to have a harder time this year maintaining that culture than he has in the past. Over the last week, Cole Beasley has again taken to Twitter to discuss his anti-vax stance with the COVID vaccine requirements that the NFL looks like it's instituting. And, And the COVID vaccine is going to be a huge part of the conversation, not only in Buffalo, but throughout the NFL. Many other players have spoken out, including high profile players like DeAndre Hopkins, who talked about his for being forced into a vaccine he doesn't believe in in order to play. And he doesn't believe in that. And look, this is a choice we all have to make. And I'm not going to 
come down on Cole Beasley or DeAndre Hopkins for their beliefs, they're entitled to their beliefs. They're also, the NFL is also entitled to put things in place to ensure the safety of the workplace for the other players. Now, I say that and mean that, but player safety in the NFL are two things that don't coincide. I know it's a buzzword and we hear that a lot, but what the NFL really cares about is making sure that they don't have to play games on Wednesday afternoon like they did last year. What they really care about is making sure their television partners get their money's worth. Because again, the new TV contracts that go into effect after this year are going to pay a huge amount of money. The television revenue last year, last year, under the old contract, paid each team, 32 teams, each of them got 309 million dollars just from television it's without selling the ticket without selling a beer hot dog no parking no merchandise 309 million dollars salary cap last year was around 200 million do the math the nfl doesn't give a rat's ass about player safety however they care about the bottom line you know the saying they protect the shield the shield is their bank account That's what the NFL protects. And with COVID threatening the TV money, this is where it becomes a very big part of the story. In Buffalo, Cole Beasley's been incredibly outspoken about his beliefs. And frankly, he's entitled to them. This country, while we may disagree politically, And somehow we got to a point where if we disagree politically, you're the worst person on the face of the earth. I'm never going to speak to you again, as opposed to I disagree and we walk away and still remain friends. It's hard to see where this is going to end up. And last week, Jerry Hughes and Cole Beasley got into a bit of a Twitter spat about this. I got to say, Jerry Hughes on Twitter is a different guy than Jerry Hughes on the football field, and I think that's probably good. Hughes on the football field is intense, sometimes steps over the line, makes dumb plays, and social media, he's a very thoughtful individual. And I'm not saying that Cole Beasley isn't. Beasley has his beliefs. Hughes has his beliefs. They were going back and forth. It wasn't ugly. It wasn't derogatory in any way. It was just... Two guys who didn't believe things. And other players kind of piped in. John Feliciano being one. Another anti-fax guy. The problem for Sean McDermott and the Bills organization is that this is not going to stop at social media. With the media being part of training camp again. And again, it won't be the same as it used to be when the camp was at Fisher. But there's going to be a ton of questions about this. And there's going to be a lot of discussion about this. And and frankly, there's going to be probably some discussion in the locker room between the players about this and how this is able to be navigated by McDermott, by the team, by the players, may go a long way to determining the success of the Bills this season. This is going to be a very different season for a lot of reasons for the Buffalo Bills. They are now the hunted. 
They went to the AFC Championship team. Josh Allen went from a 59% completion percentage guy to a 69% completion percentage guy. Allen went from a guy who was not an NFL quarterback in some people's minds to a top five NFL quarterback. Last year, there were no crowds. There was no noise to affect the team. This year, there's going to be full stadiums. All of these things are going to factor in to how this season plays out. You throw into that a locker room that may become divided, and you've got issues that McDermott's going to have to deal with. And I got to tell you, uh, for a guy who loves to control everything, Sean McDermott is a every head coach, every coach in the NFL is a control freak. But McDermott might be above and beyond as far as a control freak. When he can't control this, it's going to be a bad thing. And I, I, you know, I don't know what the answer is. You don't move on from Cole Beasley. Frankly, he gives them something very few other players in the league are able to give them. Emmanuel Sanders was a nice pickup. He compliments Cole Beasley. Beasley and Diggs together form a very good thing, a good combination because their skills complement each other. Remember, Beasley played games last year basically with a broken leg and was still able to get open. He is a huge part of this offense. So for people who say, well, just move on from him. Well, you're moving on from a guy who not only would his loss hurt the Bills, the other side of the coin is, He's not going to be out of the league for very long. He's going to end up somewhere very quickly. And there are a couple teams in the division that continue to get better and better and would love to have Cole Beasley, the Patriots and the Dolphins. They would love to have that guy play for him. So it may not be in the best interest of the Bills to move on from Cole Beasley quickly because somebody else is going to get them and hurt them. And, And here's another one. How about Kansas City? They're always looking for receivers. You think Andy Reid couldn't find a way to use Cole Beasley? So there are a lot of reasons why Beasley and Buffalo needs to happen this year. But this is going to be a very interesting sideshow as the Bills begin training camp. And frankly, I say sideshow. The first question asked after practice today will likely have a vaccine part of that question. So this is something that isn't going away. It's going to continue to be a huge story, not only in Buffalo, throughout the league. And it's going to, I think, have a huge factor in determining whether or not this Bills team fulfills the promise that many fans and media in Western New York already assume it's going to do. I'm not convinced that this Bills team is going to be able to duplicate last year's success, but this whole locker room situation could be a huge determining factor as to whether or not they're able to. Something to keep in mind. Keep in mind. When I say it's not only in Buffalo, Rick Dennison, former Bills offensive coordinator, and what a horrible hire that was by Sean McDermott, sidebar, it was the Minnesota Vikings offensive line coach. He is not going to get a vaccine. The Vikings and he decided to part ways over it. The NFL is talking about having players wear a colored wristband 
if they're unvaccinated. That's a scarlet letter. There's going to be mask requirements. There's going to be a lot of things throughout the league to make sure that players are vaccinated so that the product can go on and be put on TV. Again, that's what it's about. It's about making sure the games go off as scheduled. So while last year at this time, we were trying to figure out whether or not there was going to be a season. A few sports were starting to come back. There were going to be no fans. This year, it's an entirely different different time. There's going to be games. There's going to be fans. It's just how many are going to be allowed in with vaccination cards, non-vaccination cards, whatever the case may be. This part of the story is going to be as big a part of the NFL season this year as it was last year, if only for a different reason. The fans are going to be a big part of the story this year in the NFL. Think of opening day. Think of after last year, fans not being able to go, how electric it's going to be across the league when this year opens up. And and for the league, they don't want anything threatening that. And that's why they're going to the steps they're going to. But the players and the coaches, they're bound to do what the league says and their contract says. They're also people who have freedom of choice. And while it may seem crazy to you and I to say, I'm not going to do it and I'll give up my $10 million a year contract for the players. They might have enough money and not care about that. So it's definitely something to keep an eye on. Biggest stories in camp. Well, one of the biggest stories in the off season already looks like it may have resolved itself. And that's the Aaron Rodgers Green Bay Packers drama situation. What do you call it? It wasn't a holdout. It wasn't anything. Rodgers flew into Green Bay last night on a private jet. And of course, the media was staked out at the airport. And I didn't even know that Green Bay had its own airport. I I wonder how big the airport is in Green Bay. And do they have it just for the Packers? Because my understanding of Green Bay is it's basically a small little town. But Rodgers flew in last night. He, over the weekend, he and Devontae Adams, this excellent wide receiver, shared the same picture on their social media, and it was a picture of the last dance, indicating that this year for both of them would be their last dance in Green Bay. Rodgers apparently has worked out a situation with the Packers that after this year, he will basically be free to be moved from Green Bay. He wants to play one more year and then wants to go somewhere else. It's not about the money. Apparently, it's about controlling his destiny. I got to think the Tom Brady effect is huge in the Aaron Rodgers situation. Brady last year, of course, left New England after... 20 years of success and went to Tampa Bay and basically ran the show in Tampa and and led them to a Super Bowl championship. And I think Aaron Rodgers would like to do the same thing, control his own destiny somewhere else. Whether or not he's able to duplicate the success that Brady had remains to be seen. But Aaron Rodgers is still, in my opinion, at worst, the second best quarterback in the league. 
I think Patrick Mahomes is the best quarterback in the league, and Rodgers is second. Last year, you could make the argument that Rodgers was better than Mahomes. He was the league MVP, after all. So when you look at the entire situation, the amount of weapons or lack thereof that he has, guys coming off the street to play wide receiver, and he's still performing at that high level, can make the argument Rodgers is the best quarterback in the league still. So if you're the Packers, having him there gives you another year to groom Jordan Love, their first-round pick from two years ago out of Utah. It allows you to stay competitive, and it also allows you to navigate the salary cap, which has become problematic in Green Bay. So I think the Packers are poised once again to have a very good year. They've been to the last two NFC Championship games. They likely will compete for a third NFC Championship game. The NFC isn't all that strong. Their division, you start to look at it, Bears have a rookie at quarterback. The Lions are still in the midst of their rebuild. And the Vikings are trying to shuffle things around to get themselves back to the competitive team that they were. They're a good team, but they're not a great team. So I think the Packers have a very favorable in-division situation and likely will have home field advantage if Rodgers stays healthy for at least the first round of the playoffs. So who wants to go to Green Bay in January? Nobody. And that's a huge factor going forward. So the Rodgers situation, whatever it was, appears to have played its way out. And again, if you're a Packers fan, you got one more year of them, and that's good. If you're an NFL fan, you're going to see a great quarterback play one more year in Green Bay. And much like Brett Favre before him, they've got a guy that they drafted. They developed him. They're going to have Jordan Love ready to go and let Rodgers go have a couple years somewhere else. It's how they've done business in the past, and it's worked for them. So it's very difficult for me to criticize the Packers. Now, If you're going to criticize them, you go back to the draft of Jordan Love and you give Aaron Rodgers a heads up and you have that tough conversation of, hey, look, it's time for us to develop somebody to take over when you're gone. You don't blindside a guy by drafting him. And I think Rodgers was owed that much. I don't know if they did that with Favre, but I'm sure there were a lot of tough conversations when Favre was there too. So now the shoe's on the other foot with Aaron Rodgers, and we'll see how it plays out from here. But he's certainly still a great quarterback going forward. One of the more puzzling stories as we get into training camps is the Deshaun Watson story because it's puzzling. He reported to camp. It's puzzling because the league has done nothing or said nothing about Deshaun Watson. This guy now has 22 accusers that he has done something wrong from ranging from sexual harassment to sexual assault, depending on the accuser, hasn't been charged, does have a civil suit against him, but the league has been very quiet about this. Now, remember, there doesn't need to be actual criminal charges to warrant a suspension. Ben Roethlisberger was never charged with anything, yet suspended six games for the 
accusations that were made against him. Ezekiel Elliott was never charged. And the ironic thing about Ezekiel Elliott's situation was that the lead investigator for the NFL did not find Elliott's accuser credible, and yet he was still suspended for six games. So what happens with Deshaun Watson? Based on those situations and the fact that he has 22 accusers. By the way, I'm a big where there's smoke, there's fire guy. The smoke is billowing in this situation. 22 women have accused him of wrongdoing. And how many are massage therapists? Oh, uh, pretty much most of them, or if not all of them. So this guy goes from massage therapist to massage therapist, and all of them have the same story. Again, I don't know what happened. Only Deshaun Watson and the 22 accusers know what happened. But it seems a little strange. There are a lot of little strange things about this. Yet the league has been silent, and he is not placed on the restricted list. He's not placed on any list. Showed up for camp, still wants to be traded by the team. Well, how can the team trade him and get anything in return when the acquiring team has no idea what's going to happen with his legal situation and his suspension? And reportedly, the Texans are hoping for three first-round picks, which, frankly, is fair for a guy the caliber of Deshaun Watson on the field. But if he's not on the field, how can you give up anything and bring that guy into your organization with this cloud around him? It's just a strange situation, and it's going to be continue to be stranger until the league decides what they're going to do and how they're going to handle Deshaun Watson. This this whole thing is incredibly strange. So something to keep an eye on there for sure. I, I saw this and I was just shocked by it. There are three unsigned rookies, all first-round picks, yet two of them are quarterbacks going into camp. Now, if you're a team now, there's no reason to have an unsigned rookie because basically salaries are slotted and it's all about the offset language and that means what you're going to defer as far as money. But if you're a team with a rookie quarterback that you have huge expectations for this year, that quarterback can't be unsigned going into camp. That quarterback needs to be in camp day one. The 49ers are one of those teams that doesn't have a quarterback sign. That's Trey Lance. I think Lance is a guy who won't start right away. Jimmy Garoppolo, if healthy, will still be the starter there. Think what you will about Garoppolo. But I think Lance is the the guy that is going to need some time. He's a project similar to Josh Allen where I don't expect immediate results from Trey Lance. I expect down-the-road results from Trey Lance. But he's certainly a guy that you want in camp as soon as possible. But, again, you're not looking at him day one, so it's not that big a deal. But the one that got me is the New York Jets, with the second pick of the draft, took Zach Wilson out of BYU. Immediately anointed him 
their next franchise quarterback. They moved Sam Darnold to Carolina for a bag of balls, basically got nothing for a quarterback that just four years ago they brought in as their franchise quarterback, didn't surround him with anything, and were surprised when he didn't pan out. Now they're, they've got Zach Wilson, the next franchise quarterback, and he's not signed yet. And I know this is going to get done by the weekend, and he'll be in camp soon enough, but it's just indicative of a franchise that doesn't know how to handle its football business. The New York Jets are as dysfunctional as they've ever been. And I know they've got a new coach, Robert Sala, who has said all the right things. They said they've had a good offseason. They've strengthened the offensive line through the draft, through free agency, should be better. They drafted a running back. They've drafted a wide receiver in the second round. They're very high on. Things are looking up, supposedly. But how do you just not handle this part of the business? You know what you're going to pay this guy. You know what's going to happen. Get him into camp. Let him from day one become and grow into the leader your franchise needs. Don't bring him in late and put him behind the eight ball further. Being a rookie and put in a position where you're the face of the franchise is difficult enough. Coming in late makes it more difficult. Zach Wilson's still in California. The Jets begin training camp in in New York this week. It's ridiculous. It's just poor management yet again by a franchise that's had poor management basically since 1969, the only year that they've won the Super Bowl. It's just ridiculous. Another thing that I think we're going to hear about all through training camp is the Zach Ertz situation, especially in Buffalo. Zach Ertz is a fine tight end who's likely not to open the season with the Philadelphia Eagles. He's in camp. Many people thought he'd be moved before the start of the camp before the start of camp. It hasn't happened. The Bills are one of the teams that he's been rumored to be going to. The Bills in dire need, in my opinion, of a tight end, as much as everyone loves Dawson Knox. I think he had 32 catches last year. It's it's just not a position of strength for the team. Zach Ertz would give Josh Allen a security blanket and another weapon. And I think it'd be a huge get for the Bills. But more importantly, the Eagles are trying to figure things out. They moved on from Carson Wentz. They're going with Jalen Hurts, the young quarterback, who they really don't know what they have. They've been rumored to possibly be in the Deshaun Watson sweepstakes, which, again, if Watson's going to play, I think that would be a significant upgrade. But why would you make that move because of what I said before? It's just a weird situation with Zach Hurts because here's a guy who's going to camp to play for a team that I don't believe – He's going to play it down for this year. And the risk is for Philly, if he gets hurt in camp, then you don't have the ability to move him to a team that would certainly be happy to bring him in. And for Ertz, he'll likely pick up any offense rather quickly. He's been around the league. He's a very smart player. But the acquiring team would want to get him in as soon as possible. It's just one of those names that I think gets moved 
because it, it seems destined to happen. It just should happen sooner rather than later. There are other names of players holding out, guys like Chandler Jones, that I don't think they'll get moved. There, Michael Thomas with the Saints. There are a lot of guys who want more money and are complaining about their situation. I don't think any of them get moved. I think their deals get restructured, and they, they get some bonus money that they weren't going to get before. But it feels like Zach Ertz is the guy who's going to move. And, and and the last thing, and it's the first thing, because I talked about it first, the biggest story in camps across the NFL this year is going to be COVID. How the teams handle that, how the league handles it going forward, it's going to be the biggest story again this year, differently than last year. And the results of things are going to be different because of the crowds being part of the league this year. So while we strive to get back to normalcy in all aspects of our lives, COVID is going to be the biggest story in the NFL going forward in training camps. Major League Baseball. Man, how about the weekend the Yankees had in Boston last weekend? They lose the first game of the series because they throw four wild pitches in an inning. Unbelievable. They lose a game on Sunday where they have a no-hitter going into the eighth and then give up a four-run lead. It just games you can't lose if you're a contending team. Yet they did, and they lost them to a team that's leading the division. The Red Sox are a very good team, and I've said it over and over. Take any team's best three players and find me a team with three better players than J.D. Martinez, Xander Bogarts, and Rafael Devers. I I just don't think you can. The Padres are trying. (laughs) They keep adding. They, They added a big piece this week, and I'll get to them in a minute. But I think the Red Sox are a very good team, and I think as we get to the trade deadline, they're going to make a big move, and I wouldn't be shocked if Craig Kimbrell ends up back in Boston. But for the Yankees, they didn't help their situation, and with four days left to the trade deadline, what do they do? They're the New York Yankees. I don't believe they can just stand pat, and I don't believe they can sell. They're not in a situation where they're a bad team. Bad teams sell. Good teams buy. The Yankees are neither. They're not a good team. They're not a bad team. They're in the middle. And because of the division that they're in, their decision is way more difficult than most others because they're not better than Tampa. They're not better than the Red Sox. I don't know that they're going to be better than the Blue Jays after the deadline, because I think the Jays are going to go out and improve their bullpen, which has been the Achilles heel of that team. But the Yankees, again, I've talked about this almost every week over the last few weeks, they've got to make a decision. And do they make a big move, small move? They they did make one small move. They made a deal with the Pirates, the Walmart of Major League Baseball. One-stop shopping. What do you need? Outfielder? We got you. Need a pitcher? Sure. They went out and got a reliever, Clay Holmes. It's a depth piece. He's not 
anything special, but sure enough, he'll help them going forward. And this year, I think the bullpen for all teams is going to be more important than it's ever been because of starters and the stress on their arms from going from last year to a 60-game season to this year, 162. It's just going to be difficult down the stretch for a lot of guys, and I think bullpens are even going to take on a greater significance, and I think the the depth piece was a good move there. Yankee fans are irate that Aaron Boone took out Domingo Herman after 92 pitches that he had on Sunday, and he gave up the first hit. Analytics, ruining baseball, they say. Well, it's part of baseball. Pitch counts are now part of baseball. It's how every team does business. And sometimes it's going to help the team. Sometimes it's going to bite the team in the ass. And in this case on Sunday, it certainly bit the Yankees. I don't know that Aaron Boone is the right manager for the Yankees going forward. I don't know what the answer is. I don't like the way this team is assembled. It's a right-handed hitting softball team. It's not very athletic. It's a lot of big boppers and a lot of strikeouts, and I don't know where they go from here. I've said over and over again, the thing that I'd like to see the Yankees do is acquire a shortstop, sign him for the long term, and go forward that way. They need to get younger in the outfield. They need to get more athletic in the outfield. And frankly, with the COVID situation and injuries across the outfield, they're getting an extended look at some of the guys that they have down below. And I think they've acquitted themselves fairly well so far. Do the Yankees plan to go forward with them? Probably not. That's just not how they do business. They'd rather run out Brett Gardner and his 38-year-old legs than give Estevan Florial 300 at-bats and see what they have in him. It's just the way the Yankees do business. And it may be maddening, but it's what they do. I don't know the the answer to the Aaron Judge dilemma. And by dilemma, I mean he's a free agent after next year. I know he's the guy that sells the jerseys. He won't move before Friday. I'm confident of that. But a year from now, I think the Yankees have to take a very long look at that decision. What to do with Aaron Judge? Because I don't think you can pay him $30 million a year and expect him to go out there and play 150 games every year. If he does, he's a very good player. Top 15 player at worst in the league, maybe better than that. I just haven't seen it consistently enough to give him the respect of more than that. But Judge certainly can help a team, and if he goes to the right team, can be the piece that puts somebody over the top. But for the Yankees... He may be a luxury that they can't afford. And I know that sounds strange to Yankee fans, but Hal's not his father. And he's not going to do business the way his father did. He's not going to go over that luxury cap. And he's not going to spend money just to spend money. So we'll see where they go. Mets made a move over the weekend. I thought it was a good one. They got Rich Hill from Tampa. Hill not only has one of the better nicknames in sports, Dick Mountain, Fantastic. He's a left-handed guy who will give you five or six innings almost every time out. And while that may not seem like much, 
if you have a team that has a doubleheader on a Monday and then a game on Tuesday, two of those three games, the projected starter is TBA to be announced. In other words, the team doesn't know. Having a guy who can give you five innings is huge. The Mets are all over the trade market. And this is Steve Cohen's first trade deadline. Steve Cohen, the billionaire owner of the Mets, the richest owner in baseball, is looking to make an impact in year one. This is a team that's been in first place for a good portion of the season. Where's that impact going to come from? They're going to be without Francisco Lindor for another four or five weeks, in my opinion. That's an injury that's going to shut him down for a while. Jacob deGrom has thrown off a mound and is maybe starting to work his way back. Carlos Carrasco had a good rehab start over the weekend in Syracuse, likely to join the Mets rotation this weekend. Tyler McGill, Tyler McGill, not Tyler, Tyler McGill, has been fantastic as a rookie, better than you could have hoped for. So you wonder, do the Mets go out and spend on a big acquisition for the front part of the rotation? Max Scherzer's name has come up in discussion, so I find it hard to believe within the division, A, the Nationals would help the Mets possibly get to a World Series. B, the Mets would help the Nationals rebuild. So I'm not sure that's something that I can foresee happening. Maybe another Rich Hill-type move. But I do think that a splash is imminent, and I do think Chris Bryant... Javier Baez, those names are names to keep an, keep an eye on because I think that's something going forward that the Mets could re-sign that player and make them part of their team going forward and building for the future. So we'll see where it goes, but certainly an interesting thing to keep an eye on. I mentioned the Nationals. I mentioned Max Scherzer. Reportedly, the Nationals will listen on anyone on their roster except Juan Soto. You're not going to move Juan Soto. He's one of the best young players in the game, certainly, in my opinion, a top five player in the game right now. Soto's just great. But another name, and go back to the Yankees for a minute, because if the Yankees really want to make a splash, and they really want to end up spending some of that high-end prospect capital they have, Trey Turner is a great player at shortstop. One of the fastest players in the game can change the game just getting on base. He's been doing so repeatedly. He's excellent defensively as well. He's grown up over the last couple of years and become a huge part of this Nationals team. But the Nationals haven't been able to extend him. So they are now listening on Trey Turner. Of all the shortstops rumored to be available after this season, I'd take Trey Turner over all of them. Because of his speed, because of his ability to change games with his speed, and just frankly, the all-around player that he is, I absolutely would endorse any team going out to get Trey Turner. Plus, as a Mets fan, I'd love to get him the hell out of the division because he is that good. Keep an eye on that. The Rays picking up Nelson Cruz. Cruz is just, what is he, 90? And he still hits 
home runs left. This guy, he's going to, he and Julio Franco, I'm not sure who aged slower, but he's still a great hitter. It's crazy to think that, but he really is. I love that move for the Rays. See if they're done. The Padres picked up Adam Frazier. Excellent, excellent second baseman. It's one of those moves that I really like for the Padres because they got a great player. And again, I feel bad for Joe's Pirates that they're selling off yet again. And the rebuild continues. It's now in its third decade. Whatever. It's just one of those things from the Padres' standpoint that you look at and you go, where are you going to play him? And supposedly the fallout for Frazier is they're going to look to move Eric Hosmer. Hosmer is a guy I really like. He's got a great attitude. He's a great team player. Slipped a little defensively. Has always been well above average defensively and at times was great defensively. He's not been that lately. Hasn't really put up the numbers. Has four years left on that big deal. He signed with the Padres a few years back. So I would think that the Padres would have to kick in some money to move him. But I also think that if they move him, it may take something away from the clubhouse. And Hosmer, I think, could bring something to a contender that's looking for a final piece. So keep an eye on the Padres. I don't believe they're done. And in that division where the Giants are playing great baseball, the Dodgers are an excellent team as the defending champion, albeit without Trevor Bauer, I think that the Padres have to continue to add pieces to keep up. Now, I think the Dodgers and Giants will both add, and frankly, I I wouldn't be shocked if Max Scherzer's wearing a Dodgers uniform next week. It just seems like one of those moves that the Dodgers would make, and with Bauer's money being in limbo, if you will, with his situation, they may be able to get out of that contract I think that allows them to bring in some more salary and keep things going. The A's are always a good team, and they're always doing things on the cheaper side that seem to work out. But they picked up left-handed reliever Adam Chafin from the Cubs. Cubs still the team to keep an eye on going forward in this trade deadline. It's just going to be interesting to see who buys, who sells, and what teams. There's, there's going to be a, a buyer that you don't expect and a seller you don't expect. That's where it's going to get interesting. Money rules sports. We all know that. Money rules the world. We all know that. College football is no different, and maybe even more of a straight money grab for college programs. And the NCAA going through what it's going through with the name image likeness thing. This is an even bigger stage now for the players. And colleges, they're going to look to be on the biggest stage possible. It's been rumored for a while that college football was going to end up with three super conferences and the rest just playing to possibly get in. Well, this week's news that Oklahoma and Texas are likely leaving the Big 12 to join the SEC is further evidence of that super conference. And while Texas A&M is going to be pissed that Texas is now in the SEC because now they have to share the territory, I think this is a great move for Texas, and I think it's a great move for Oklahoma. 
The Big 12 has been a farce of a conference, in my opinion, over the last couple of years anyway. Great offense, a lot of really exciting 43-40 to 40 games. But when it comes down to it, these teams aren't equipped to play for a national championship. You go to the SEC, you have to change the way you play a little bit, and you have to build that defense as well as the offense. And I think then you have an opportunity to have a team that can compete for a national championship. Currently, the college football playoff is at four teams. I expect it to go to eight. And one of the reasons why I think with 14 teams in the SEC, you're going to want to have, especially with Oklahoma and Texas now joining it, you're going to want to have more than one or two SEC teams in the playoff. The question is the domino effect. How does this affect the Big Ten? Does the Big 12 try to recruit Iowa back to the Big Big Ten, Big 12, to try to save their conference? Does the Big Ten look to expand now because they need to compete? Does the ACC get touched at all? And here's where Syracuse comes into play. Remember a few years back when Syracuse left the Big East for the ACC, it was all about football. Well, their football program's in shambles. Nobody wants Syracuse joining their conference for football right now. Basketball is still a very viable sport at Syracuse. But then there's the A-B time that we're looking at. You know what I mean? After Bayheim, A-B. And it's coming. It's going to happen. How productive, how marketable, and how good is the Syracuse program going to be? All these decisions are made about football because football is the money sport. Well, Syracuse brings nothing to the table in the football department. Yet, at, at current time, they can bring a lot to the table basketball-wise, tradition, and still competitive. They're not as good as they were, but the recruiting's seemingly getting better over the next couple of years. We'll see where they go from, from this year. But I think if the ACC starts playing some musical chairs, Syracuse might be in trouble because I'm not sure how viable they are. They went to the ACC at the right time. The football program was solid. It looked to be on the upswing. The basketball program was excellent. They were a nice addition to the ACC. Things have changed. They're not the same team. They're not the same programs. They're not the same athletic department as they were a few years back. Heck, the ACC is big into lacrosse. They don't even have the same lacrosse coach anymore with John Desco leaving and Gary Gate stepping over from the girls' program to the men's program. So we'll see where it goes. But this is definitely a concern if, again, the musical chairs and the dominoes start falling. If you're a fan of a team in the ACC and the Big Ten, certainly the Big 12, keep your head on a swivel because things may change rapidly. The Olympiad now is uh, five days, four days old. And... To say it's not been very compelling would be an understatement. U.S. basketball team losing to France, that was interesting. It was also, what the hell's going on? How are we losing to France? 
just ridiculous that this is happening. Simone Biles, the face of the Olympiad in Tokyo, has stepped away from the team competition. She, at this point at least, will still compete in the individual, which NBC has got to be praying she's good and will be able to compete in that because she is a huge part of the marketing plan for this Olympiad. But it's been disastrous ratings-wise. It's been very difficult to find events. Like, I don't even know what channel things are on. It's very, very strange. The biggest story, I think, so far, or maybe the coolest moment, was last night when 17-year-old Lydia Jacoby won the 100-meter breaststroke. Lydia's from, uh, yeah, Alaska. You know, we breed a lot of swimmers from Alaska. Think about that. Think of where you would expect a young swimmer to be coming from. Alaska wouldn't be in my top 50 choices. Yet, somehow, Lydia did it. And, And watching the video of the watch party that was set up, with her family and friends was really cool. This 17-year-old girl winning a gold medal was really cool. And that's what makes the Olympics great. Not so much the Katie Ledeckis and the Simone Biles, not the known quantities, but the unknown quantities. That's where I think it always gets better. Think of all the great Olympic moments through time. Most of them were unexpected. Most of them had an element of surprise to them, and that's why we remember them. This Olympiad, the biggest story may end up being the lack of crowds and the fact that they're competing in front of empty arenas. Or it may be the fact that a typhoon just missed Tokyo and COVID numbers are exploding currently in Japan. So we'll see where it goes, but it has been less than compelling so far. And frankly, if it ended today, I wouldn't miss it tomorrow. And that's a sad, sad statement from somebody who always loved the Olympics. It's just not been a very interesting Olympiad so far for me. Speaking of uninteresting and uninspiring, over the weekend, the NHL had their draft. So let's start with the good. The Sabres had the number one pick. Yeah, they got a kid from uh, from Michigan. Might go back to Michigan. Owen Power, big defenseman. Now they've got two number one overall picks who are defensemen. That's, you know, building blocks, right? That's excellent. They also ended up with the 14th pick. They got Isaac Rosen, a winger from Sweden. They got that because they traded Rasmus Ristolainen to Philly for that number one pick. They also got back Robert Hag, a defenseman. So, You know, maybe adding to the blue line is the way to go. They then turned around on Saturday and made a deal. Sam Reinhart, consistent 20-goal scorer, former number 2 overall pick, didn't want to be in Buffalo, but then again, who does? Wanted out and got out, and they sent him to Florida. They got a first-round pick next year from the Panthers and got a goalie. Devin Levy is the goalie. Now, does that solve their goalie issues going forward? No. Just means they have a goalie that will be in camp. 
this organization is so beyond clueless, it's not even funny. And while people can point to it and say, look, they got rid of Arista line and they got rid of Reinhardt. They're going to move Eichel. They weren't winning with those guys. Why not? And I get that. I really do. If you're not winning with the guys you're paying a bunch of money to, why not get rid of them and start over? Well, here's why. Because it's been 10 years since they've made the playoffs. Oh, or they've never made the playoffs in Terry Pagula's ownership. Either one. You could choose whichever time reference you want. But when are they going to? If you're the worst team in the league and you decide to gut your team and rebuild, usually when you rebuild, you're a good team and you've got to get better. They have nowhere to go but up, seemingly. Of course, this is the Sabres and the Pagulas still own them. And Kevin Adams, the rookie general manager who a year ago was selling tickets, is making all these decisions. You trade a consistent 20-goal score, keep them in the Atlantic division, and you get back a first-round pick next year and a goalie who might make your team. That's not good return, in my opinion. It really isn't. And frankly, it might have been that the best return that Kevin Adams was offered back. But you didn't have to move Sam Reinhart. You didn't have to move Rasmus Ristolainen. And you don't have to move Jack Eichel. Well, maybe you have to move Jack Eichel because he certainly doesn't want to play there anymore. And he's not going to give you very good effort if he doesn't want to play there anymore. And if the rumors about Eichel are true, maybe you don't want him there. There are a lot of things to consider. But from a fan's perspective, consider this. If you spend that $150 for a ticket, or even the $85 for a ticket, you're watching AHL-level hockey, sprinkled in with a few NHL players. This is an organization that, yet again, will be drafting at the very top of the NHL draft next year. They're already worse than the expansion team, the Kraken. If the Kraken traded their roster to Buffalo for their roster, it would be an improvement. And the Kraken have never played a game. This team is clueless because the ownership is clueless. Everyone says, how did they get it so right with Buffalo, with the Bills, and get it so wrong consistently with the Sabres? Remember this. They got lucky with Sean McDermott. The previous hire, (laughs) it was Rex Ryan. That didn't work out so well. Put him on the map. A lot of dumb quotes. A lot of airtime. But not too many wins. And not too many great coaching moments. Sean McDermott changed the Buffalo Bills. Who's the guy that's going to change the Buffalo Sabres? Is he... The guy who's in-house now, Granado, maybe. Is Kevin Adams the GM? Maybe. But sorry, I'm not all that optimistic that they're going to be. I just don't see enough evidence to think that this is going to change anytime soon.
and Sabre fans for that because you're incredibly loyal, I'm sorry. But expect another year of missing the playoffs, at least, and another year where you look at things and go, yeah, who are they going to trade next year? Well, think of the bright side. They'll compete for the number one overall pick again, and, well, they've got a second first round or two. So there's always going to be that pipeline. Go Amherst. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great week. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast.